This is the CQ on Congress Coronavirus Special Report. We're bringing you daily updates on the policy news you need to know from CQ Roll Call's reporters in Washington. I'm Jason Dick. Today is Tuesday, August 4th, 2020. After days of seemingly intractable negotiations between Democrats on Capitol Hill and the White House on a coronavirus relief package, there was a small bit of movement today. The catch? It's what most people figured anyway. That Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has not participated in the daily discussions, will support whatever deal the White House agrees to with Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. With enhanced unemployment benefits and an eviction moratorium already expired, the pressure is on to do something. After today's latest meeting among Pelosi, Schumer, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, the principal players cited incremental progress, but said there was still a lot of work to get through. We're going to start tonight with CQ Roll Call staff writer Emily Kopp, who has a story on how NIH officials hope they are nearing a breakthrough on a treatment for COVID-19. We need more treatments like that, and this is one of the most promising ones. Just getting started in the trial, it'll be probably a couple months before we know if it works, but it's another reason to be optimistic that we're on the right path. That was Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health. He and Anthony Fauci are excited about the possibility that an antibody identified in the blood of a recovered COVID-19 patient could reduce symptoms or stave off hospitalization and death. Antibodies are proteins that can sometimes give someone immunity from a harmful pathogen, like a devastating pandemic virus. Monoclonal antibodies are antibodies that are singled out for their disease-fighting potential and multiplied in a lab. They were discovered in the 1970s and have been used to fight other diseases. The name of this particular monoclonal antibody doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. It's called LY-CoV-555. It was originally identified by a Canadian pharmaceutical company in the blood of one of the earliest patients who recovered from COVID-19, a resident of Washington State. Researchers have identified more than 500 antibody sequences in total. Then NIH evaluated them in order to determine which had the best potential to combat the coronavirus. Scientists are still learning which antibodies fight and confer protection against COVID, but the NIH hopes they've singled out a powerful one. There is some hope among senior administration officials that monoclonal antibodies will be made available this fall, before the discovery of a vaccine, as a stopgap solution until herd immunity can be achieved. And when there is a vaccine, there will still be a lot of concern that it will have limited efficacy, especially in older adults. It's possible we won't reach herd immunity at all. In that case, there's some hope that monoclonal antibodies could improve survival and could even prevent infection in this older population. The results of the clinical trial are due in late October or early November, according to Fauci. Meanwhile, my colleague Lauren Clayson reported today that the CDC is still conflating COVID-19 data on diagnostic testing and antibody testing in its data. CDC says it's three-fourths done with a new reporting system that will fix that problem. The conflation between the traditional tests and the generally less accurate antibody tests has led to confusion over case counts. It's driven researchers and the public to use other sources like the COVID tracking project to keep track of the severity of the pandemic. Next, staff writer Jim Saxa has been reporting on the pandemic's effect on labor unions. It's a mixed picture, and it could also have political ramifications. So I've started looking into what COVID-19 is doing to organize labor, and I've noticed two trends. One could be good news for unions, but the other's really bad. On one hand, tens of millions of workers have lost their jobs. On the other hand, 
a lot of those workers are pissed off, and they're using their newfound free time to organize. Restaurant workers have long been less likely to unionize than other private sector employees. But the pandemic has hit them harder than a lot of other workers. Bars and restaurants were completely shut down early on and will be among the last businesses to return to normal, if at all. Workers who lived paycheck to paycheck and without benefits before were fired with no severance. And worse, many had trouble getting unemployment insurance, either because they had worked for tips or because of their immigration status. So they're fed up and starting to organize. And they're not the only unorganized workers who have noticed that union membership improves the odds of keeping your job in a recession. But it's way too early to say whether that'll translate into a bump into union membership when all is said and done. In the meantime, we know that the huge job losses we've already seen and the risks we'll see even more threaten to ravage some unions, particularly those in the public sector. The pandemic has quite literally decimated the economy. It dropped by more than 10% last year. On an analyzed basis, that means the economy shrunk by a third. That's devastated state and local budgets, putting those government workers at risk of big layoffs if Congress doesn't bail them out. The American Federation of Teachers says schools face a $100 billion shortfall, which means 1.4 million educators could lose their jobs. Another analysis by the Economic Policy Institute estimated that cities and states will have to issue more than 5 million pink slips if Congress doesn't rescue their budgets. That would obviously be bad for those teachers, cops, and garbage men. But it could be even worse for the labor movement. While only 6% of private sector workers are unionized, that number jumps to over a third for public sector employees. And all that union pain could ultimately hurt Democrats as well. Unions aren't big campaign spenders, but they do provide a lot of manpower. In a lot of cities, local bargaining units are pre-organized GOTV machines for Democratic candidates. Even with door-knocking a no-go because of COVID, union workers are still manning phone banks. Bailing out state and local governments would be a popular move. Polls consistently show that more than two-thirds of voters support it, including a large majority of registered Republicans. Even the U.S. Chamber of Commerce says it'd be good for business. But still, most Senate Republicans have said no so far. That could just be the GOP's normal allergic reaction to more government spending. But there might also be something a bit more strategic to that position. Republicans have long sought to weaken public sector unions, and the coronavirus might just do it for them. Finally, as schools begin trying to reopen, one set of high-profile institutions of higher learning face a unique set of challenges, the service academies. In an era of social distancing and pandemic protocols, how do you train service personnel not just to pass military history, but physically prepare for fighting a war? CQ Roll Call staff photographer Caroline Bremen spent some time at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and she and I discussed what she saw and what she reported through her photographs. Caroline Bremen, you uh, spent some time at the Naval Academy taking photos of the plebes, the the freshmen for first-year students who show up at the Naval Academy for training. Uh, Let's talk uh, about first just how this story that you're working on, this this project you're working on, came about uh, before we get into the content of some of those photographs because they're they're really quite striking. Sure. Uh, So actually, uh, our video editor, Jeannie Hernandez, uh, brought it to my attention 
Um, we saw stories about the Coast Guard Academy up in Connecticut. I know it well, up in uh, New London, yes, Connecticut. Yes. yes. And so wow. since Annapolis, where the Naval Academy is, is so close, we thought we'd take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I reached out to their media relations person and we talked on the phone and I pitched the idea um, and she was she was open to it. You know, I, I think that the the thing that is is striking about this story and why it's so important uh, and it's such a, so great to have a visual element too is that, you know, different parts of the country are reopening at different times. Um, you know, we have the choice uh, or, or Major League Baseball, say, had the choice or the NBA had the choice of how they reopen. But with the military <laughs> and its training academies, there's more of a priority there. I mean, these are literally the people who keep uh, the country safe. And so the, there's a real premium on keeping people safe and doing this right. And let's let's talk about some of these images because, um, you know, what they're, they're obviously trying to do kind of a bubble type situation, right? And they have control. How did that, how did, how did it work? Uh, because it looks like uh, if it's not a bubble, they could be in trouble because people are standing really close to one another. <laughs> yeah. So I do think that where they have an advantage over, say, other types of schools, they had a two-week quarantine period when they first arrived. And from my understanding, it was very strict. They had meals delivered to the dorms where they're all staying. So once the train started, it was less um, of a risk factor. Um, and the ones that did have symptoms did get additional quarantine time. The biggest risk factor that was still remaining were the instructors that were still going home each night and people like mm-hmm. me who are coming in and having quarantined. But yeah, people were still pretty close together. Um, they wore masks. The plebes wore masks when they were doing activities in the classrooms inside, but most of it's physical training, which they were not wearing masks for. I, I wonder also, I mean, did, did you get to talk to some of the plebes or was that, is this the same kind of situation as the Capitol War? It's kind of difficult to get close to people because, uh, you know, they can always say, nope, social distancing. <laughs> uh, I did not talk to the plebes as much because I didn't want to interrupt what they were doing. I was able to talk with um, some of the instructors and they told me some some of the major differences between this year in other years past, one thing I found interesting was something that I hadn't thought about was with the weather. Uh, mm-hmm. Normally, they would start earlier in the summer where the weather isn't so hot. And because mm-hmm. the day I was there, it was, it was very, very hot. And when you're outside doing physical activity all day, that obviously takes a toll on you, along with you know leading sedentary lives before coming to the academy Um where physical fitness is important. So there's just a lot of different factors that I think just make it harder for this year's class. And do you think that there are, I mean, when you spend a lot of time at the Capitol, uh, I'm interviewing you as you're in the, one, of the, uh, one of the galleries there. Do you think there's, what, what, is, what was it like going from the Capitol, which is almost like this free-for-all with social distancing and, and the precautions and, and being at, at the military academy where they obviously have to take it so seriously? Yeah, um, I definitely felt like it was, more under control at the Naval Academy than it is here in the Capitol. Um, And also I felt more comfortable around them because they've been in quarantine and they've been all in one place. Whereas in the Capitol, there's people coming from all over the country each week. Without any testing. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. And I just want to add something that was interesting about my time at the Naval Academy. One thing I didn't get to photograph, which I really wish I got to was uh, the last activity of the day. I walked into this, 
indoor field where the rock climbing was happening. And the entire field was filled with boxes, like almost to the ceiling. Um, and I was like, well, well, what is this? And why are there people outside in their cars that clearly aren't plebes? And so I was told that the people in the academy um, went away for spring break in, in March and were told they weren't allowed to come back um, because of quarantine. And so that was all their stuff boxed up. And they were there that day picking up their stuff, I guess, in allotted times. Unfortunately, I was not allowed to take photos of it, but it was very interesting to see. Uh, well, Carolyn, your uh, your photos will be uh, up uh, in a, a photo essay on rollcall.com com on, uh, on on Wednesday, accompanied with a story by our own Mark Satter, who who uh, was able to to do a, a story of his own about that. And uh, thank you very much for for taking the time and doing this. I think it's a real interesting look at a different different side of public service than uh, sometimes our readers get. Yes, thank you, thank you. That's going to do it for us tonight for the CQ Roll Call Newsroom. I'm Jason Dick.